0: uh i'm stretching it feels good are we gonna start with this this way sure let's do it (laughs) because it's ridiculous so many podcasts have uh finished and uh well furnished beginnings but let's keep this one humble huh let's keep it imperfect because let's be honest we all are so welcome this is well this is begin again i've um been picking this up again after a couple months of hiatus because of other things going on. And I'm really glad to to kind of get back to this and be creative in some alternative way, you know. I hope you enjoyed the last episode. I interviewed Brian Zahn, which was an enormous privilege. I had a lot of uh, enjoyment, and uh, it was just a great conversation. We actually chatted for a little bit even after we stopped recording. About some of the movies that we talked about at the end of that episode. So I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. But I have, uh, I guess, a little bit of an announcement. I've got something coming up that I probably will get done in the next week and I'll be able to share it with you at the next one. Yeah. But this one, this one is called Thomas Merton and Deep Scene. I've uh, been cooking on this one for a while, but there's a reason for sharing this today. And the reason is because on December 10th, 1968, 53 years ago, Thomas Merton passed away at 53 years old. So at 53, he died 53 years ago. And he's understood as one of the looming figures of Christian contemplative tradition of Catholicism and activism of some very important writings that happened now he passed away overseas when he was speaking I believe in China let's let's google this real quick where did he pass away Thomas Merton I'm literally googling it right now oh he died in Thailand that's where it was but he was born in France I did know that he has a famous, famous autobiography called The Seven Story Mountain. But today's episode, we're going to focus in on one of his writings called The New Seeds of Contemplation. It's considered one of his absolute classics, and in in some ways, it's almost as though he took some of the insights and conversations that he had with some of his Buddhist friends and tried to. Find where there is common ground between Zen Buddhism and the Catholicism that he was a part of. And so as a result of that, some of his writings came out in the form of this book called The New Seeds of Contemplation. You absolutely need to read it. Uh, I think it's one of the most clarifying books you could ever read. And here's the best thing. It starts off with two chapters called What Contemplation Is and What Contemplation Is Not, and it's so good. But let's let's talk about that word, contemplation. Let's talk about John chapter 9, which we'll get to in a little bit, and then maybe what are some of the benefits. Now, what are some of the benefits of deep seeing? Now, when I say uh, deep seeing, when I bring up Thomas Merton like this, some people don't know what to do with that, especially people that are either unchurched, they don't know what to do with some of the conversations about religion, but even churched folk, because we kind of, we kind of do have a conventional wisdom. And some of these looming figures of church history, they kind of stand upon the conventional to say something beyond the conventional. Does that make sense? And so sometimes these figures get avoided, even though they have enormous depth and wisdom and good things to say. So let's anchor this around two general statements, okay? And it goes like this. There's a common conception that religion is about deception, right? That religion is false, that religion is meant to cover your eyes or tell you lies or to, I don't know, distract you from reality, from truth. Well, in this, let's see if we can come at it from a different angle. Yes, you can have that opinion that religion is about deception, but in reality, I think religion has far more to do with deep seeing than it does with deception. Deep seeing versus deception. And so let's let's chat through that, all right? Some people are very uncomfortable with the word contemplation. Some people feel as though they hear that word and it sounds a little too Eastern in its philosophy or in its spirituality. But the reality is, it's a part of the Judeo-Christian worldview. Although we don't talk about it, perhaps as much as we could or should. But in Hebrew, in Hebrew... There are two words that mean uh, meditate, which is often associated with contemplate. Siach and haya. Aren't those good words? Siach and haya. These words show up 58 times in the Old Testament. Meditate. Meditate on this. Meditate on that. Meditate over there. Meditate under the trees. Meditate while you're walking. Meditate when you rise. There's... Places where it shows up all over, yet we don't quite seem to emphasize it as much. But it shows up 58 times. But then in in the New Testament, there's this word mysterion, or where we get it, it comes down to the word mystery, which shows up 28 times. It's like, whoa. So we've got this insistence to meditate on mysteries, to meditate, to contemplate. But that's also where the word contemplate really shows up. Now, in the very, very early tradition of the church, prayer used to be called, or used to have the word fioria from the early, early church. How fascinating is that? Fioria. Now, that has to do with theo, theory, and so it actually has to do with looking at things, theory. And so prayer often had a lot to do with learning to look at things in the same way that theos or God does. So the word for God, theos, and the word theory, you can hear some some, uh, similarities there. Because maybe prayer is about learning to look at the world the way that God does And that's exactly what a theory is. A theory is an attempt to try to understand something objectively. Maybe you can't. It's just a theory and it might change. But that's interesting, isn't it? And so over time, when the early church started speaking more and more Latin, this word theoria became the word contemplatio. And so really, contemplation is a matter of prayer contemplation is a matter of deep looking, of, of learning to see things appropriately, of learning to look at the world as God does. And that's certainly what prayer is supposed to be. Prayer is supposed to be about helping us drop certain deceptions and learn to have a the ability to look at the world as God does. I actually really enjoyed the words of Richard Rohr, who at one point says that prayer is a matter of giving something a long, loving look. Isn't that good? A long, loving look. Now, I'm going to read through John chapter 9 because we're going to use that as the, the jumping point, the, the diving board from which we'll dive even further into all of this. All right. So let's, let's do this. I'm going to read for us John chapter 9, the entire thing. So you can just sit back, you can just listen, it's all going to be good, but then we're going to use this as, like I said, the jumping point to talk about deep seeing, as the jumping point to talk about deception, as the jumping point to talk about so many more other things. So this is John 9. This is a, a story where Jesus heals a blind man. And so, of course, right, in the midst of this, talk about deep seeing and contemplation and learning to look at the world as God does, yeah, we should definitely read a story about a blind man being healed, right? Here we go. As he went along, he saw a man... um, Wow. Wow. Yeah, I didn't do that well. Let's start over. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. How interesting, right? He talks about himself as the light of the world in the same chapter where we talk about blindness and sight. Continuing. After this, after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now, what's going on here? Well, some people like to think that this has got some callback to Adam and Eve being created out of the dirt. That at the beginning of the creation story, there is a formless, watery chaos. And then God creates mankind out of the dirt, out of the Adam. How interesting, right? But more than that, there was, this is really kind of gross, there was this old superstition, I guess you could say, that the Roman emperors, when they would come walking through, they would actually spit on the people on the side of the road if they were having a parade. Because the emperors were understood as having healing properties in their saliva, And so here's Jesus using spit, but he spits it on the ground and then makes some mud out of it and then uses that to complete this man's sight to help heal it. So there are some echoes back in here. I understand you might be grossed out by the spit of Jesus being used to heal someone, but it might be talking to this idea that he's more powerful than the emperors are. And it might have some echoes of going back to Genesis 1. Let's keep going. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was, but others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am. Which that's actually what the text says. I am. How then were your eyes open? They asked, and he replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know. They brought to the They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the eyes, the man's eyes, was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. And the man replied, he is a prophet. Let's pause for just a moment. Yes, it's true. There were strong regulations against working on the Sabbath. But as you may have noticed, if you go back and you read some of these biographies of Jesus, the gospels, he seems to frequently be healing people on the Sabbath which is always a profound thing, right? But he calls him a prophet. And John's gospel has something known as escalating testimonies, that as the chapters go along, each of the people tend to give Jesus a title. And each of them, as the chapters go on, escalate and elevate. At first, he's just a teacher, and then he's a rabbi, and now he's a prophet. And then later on, he's going to be called... My Lord and my God by Thomas. But that's that's getting ahead. Let's keep going. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. They didn't believe him. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but now, but, but how... He can see now, or who opened his eyes? We we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who had acknowledged Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man is a sinner. How interesting is that? The Pharisees are throwing some uh, intimidation. Give glory to God by saying Jesus is a sinner. Ooh. And they even throw in this line, stop telling lies. Tell the truth. This man was a sinner. Ooh. So we got an intimidation factor here. Verse 25, he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. That was smart. He feigned, he had ignorance here. He didn't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? And how did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? (laughs) Uh, That's so good. He's like, he's so frustrated. Uh, I've already told you this. Why do you want to hear the story again? You want to start following him also? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are the disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he came from. Ooh, They're denouncing him and falling back on Moses. The man answered, now that is remarkable. Jeez, you don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this, they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So these Pharisees are deferring back to tradition. They try to insult the town of origin where Jesus came from, but then this man infers, well, no, this this man came from God, who cares what town he came from? And this is where we hit the real crescendo, and then we're going to chat about it. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, the blind man, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. Now, let's focus in on verse 39. For judgment, which, by the way, judgment in this, in this sense doesn't necessarily mean condemn. Judgment means give correct assessment. For correct assessment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and that those who see will become blind. I've always found this passage to be uniquely paradoxical. You know, it's, it's similar in some ways to other passages where it says, if you keep your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life, you'll save it. Well, here's something similar, a paradox. If you say that you're blind, then you will see. But if you say that you see, then you will be blind. What on earth does that mean? Well, it probably has to do with this idea back at the beginning. That some people think that religion is about deception. And and there is a way in which you can be so devoted to a tradition or to a religion just like the Pharisees where your devotion to the tradition actually makes you blind. You say that you see all things as they are, but really you're just only seeing what the tradition tells you to see. And by, by doing that, you're actually blind. And so th- it's a brilliant reversal here, that the Pharisees, who are the most religious somehow paradoxically are also the most blind. Now that's a real quandary. But then here's a man who was born blind. He's not a Pharisee. He's not one of the religious elite, yet he is the one that sees deeply, even though blind. His eyes are opened and there's a clarity to his vision. There's a clarity to his trust that doesn't happen with the Pharisees. And so that's really wild. So there seems to be a connection with humility and deep seeing humility with clarity and that the more pride there is, the more obscure things become. And so for Jesus and his followers, It's really the humble, it's really the uneducated, the unlearned, the ones that don't have privilege that somehow are the ones that get it the most. They're the ones that don't presume to have all the answers or even any answers. And somehow as a result of that, that means that the answer comes to them and heals them. So that whole idea that religion is about deception, on a surface level, it could look like that. It's almost as though the more devoted you get to religious traditions, the less you can see. However, to those that claim humility, to those that claim that they don't have all the answers, somehow the mystery that the religion was always about comes to them. And so I like this idea that that false religion is actually quite deceptive. False religion is absolutely deceptive, but true religion is actually all about deep seeing. It's all about deep seeing. It's all about looking at things with the same vision that God does, not with the same vision that the tradition does, not with the same vision that perhaps the religious elite do, but instead, can you look at things with the same perspective that God does? And that's a very different things. So false religion, sure, it is quite deceptive. It's got its own agenda. It tries to maintain its status quo. It wants to keep the elite as the elite. It wants to maintain its power structures and hierarchy. But true religion is transparent. It's full of clarity and it's concerned with deep seeing. How lovely is that? Now, I've got a few quotes here about deep scene that I think are just fantastic. There's a beautiful line in this. uh, It it was a movie, but before that was a book called Dr. Shivago. And it's got this one line that has stuck with me that one of the main characters, she realizes that it was her task in life to learn to call all things by their right name. It was her task in life to call all things by their right name. And so, my goodness, how lovely is that? To spend your life trying to accurately name things for what they are. Not to give labels. I don't mean that because labels can be deceptive. But to try to call things by their proper name? hmm The Pharisees in this story, they weren't concerned with naming things according to what they really are, to call Jesus by his right name, to call Jesus by what he actually is. Instead, they were interested in keeping up a particular narrative that kept them on top and kept their system in control of the whole situation. But this man who was born blind chose to try to name Jesus by his right name. Who is this man? He is, is he the Christ? Yeah. So then the second quote actually comes from Merton. And this, I, I couldn't find where this came from. I believe it's, well, I won't say what book I think it's in, but it's so good. And he makes a comment similar to this about people that know how to call things by their right name. And he says that these people are saints. The people that know how to call things for what they really are, these people are saints. But he goes so far as to say, but there may only be 10 people in the entire world, 8 billion people. There may only be 10 that call things by their proper name. And it's these 10 people that keep the world from flying off of its axis. As if the people that call things by their right name, the people that can see things deeply with a long loving look, as Rohr calls it, somehow uh, cause shockwaves of health and well-being in concentric circles out from them. That these people are more than just people, they're anchors for reality because they look at things in the same way that God does because they're actually all about true religion rather than false religion they're not interested in false titles or false hierarchies false power they're they're interested in truth and that gives them a clarity which anchors the world oh isn't that interesting oh that's so amazing so let's let's talk through a list here I've got Six things here. What are some obstacles that we might have to having deep seeing? What are some obstacles that we might have towards seeing the world as God does? What are some obstacles or hurdles to calling things by their right name? Yeah? Number one, (laughs) it's real easy to believe easy or lazy lies. Sometimes, learning to look at the world w- accurately, it means we, we can't just be lazy anymore. Now we know the truth about something, it's almost as though we've got dirty hands and guilty knowledge. Oh, I see it for what it is, now i got to do something about it. But sometimes, those deceptive lies really just enable us to be passive and not really do anything. Second, Ego, admitting that we were recently wrong about something or wrong for a long time or possibly even built up a whole life and career off of a wrong perspective of something. All of those reasons, short, long term, or you built your life upon the lies, it's hard. To let go of your ego and admit, man, I was looking at this thing completely wrong. So sometimes ego can be a real heavy obstacle to learning to look at things appropriately and as God does. Number three, which I guess is actually part of part one. It's a call to action. When you see things for what they are, you're no longer allowed to be passive, right? Right. You see the abuse for what it is. You see what's actually happening. And now, now that you see through the lies, you're like, you know what? I really can't do this anymore. I can't subscribe. Number four, one of the reasons we may not be able to, to do deep seeing, and this is hard, is perhaps we were trained not to see things deeply. False religion is really really interested in keeping us shallow. False religion is really interested in only surface understandings of reality. Surface understandings of ourselves or other people or issues in the public. False religion loves to keep things shallow. And in that sense it's it's maybe partially deceptive. But deep seeing Deep seeing is more than that. It means maybe we've got to untrain how we've been taught how to look at the world and retrain our eyes to see things maybe as God does. I like that one a lot. That's a good one. Number five, one of the reasons we may not be able to have deep seeing and and call things by their right names is maybe leadership or authority don't want us to. Yeah, maybe we weren't trained to see it, but more than that, they don't want us to start seeing things for what they are because they maybe benefit from us having a shallow understanding of things, a shallow definition, a, a surface understanding of the world in front of us, about dynamics or the workplace or something else, you know? And then, number six. <laughs> One of the obstacles to deep seeing might be realizing that something or someone might be better or worse than we thought they were. So that means a situation, right? You might have to actually come around to realizing, I thought that was better than it was or I thought it was worse than it really was. And I maybe I liked being angry at thinking that how bad it might have been, you know? But then also maybe with people, maybe you've got to stop and recognize, oh, no, this situation, this person is worse than I thought they were, and I don't like that. Or perhaps you have to stop and say, maybe that person is better than I thought they were, and I loved having my low perspective of them, you know? And so there's a clarity that has to come along, but it's a double-edged clarity. It could go in either direction. But the thing is, true religion, which I believe Jesus was all about, true religion is actually about deep seeing. And that deep seeing is liberating because lies are always enslaving, right? So, but what what are some of the benefits of deep seeing for yourself? Deep seeing, well, Fyodor Dostoevsky. The author of the Brothers Karamazov, he talks about truth is a necessary prerequisite to love. And that if your life is built on lies and deception, it's impossible to love. And so one of the benefits to deep seeing about learning to look at things the way that God does with clarity is it enables you to have love for yourself for other people, for the world, with a true love. Not a shallow love or a love that's built on lies, but an honest love with eyes wide open. Yeah. What about for others? Well, as you cultivate deep seeing, it benefits the people around you because you can see things for them that they maybe can't see for themselves And that could be in either direction. Maybe you see that they're better than they think they are. Maybe it also means you see their issues that they don't see for themselves. But the reality is truth will set you free, right? Once it pisses you off. (laughs) Once it makes you angry. But you got to be willing to be made angry. Because on the other side of being made angry by the truth is being liberated by the truth. Yeah. And then what about for the world? Well, only that which is confessed or acknowledged can be healed. And if we're going around the world with a false religion that helps us be deceived or be uh, with our eyes half closed to the world, well, then we can't really acknowledge or name the pain that we see. And anything that is not confessed or acknowledged can't be healed because then it's just being avoided. Then it's just being uh, compartmentalized or not integrated. And so I like this idea that deep seeing actually helps the world to heal because we all know truth is a good thing but lies, it just causes pain, disruption, disintegration. Yeah. So maybe there are some benefits to deep seeing, to contemplating the world around you deeply, to learning to look at the world with a deep theoria, which was the early church's word for prayer. And let's be honest deep seeing leads to deep action, it leads to deep compassion. It leads to a depth that otherwise isn't possible elsewhere. And to go back to the earlier two sentences, I believe that false religion is inherently deceptive. False religion is inherently shallow. It wants you to go through the world with half-closed eyes. Yeah, It wants you to have a surface-level understanding of defining the world around you. So that then you don't end up noticing the pain or the hurt, the things that need to change. But true religion, right, which is actually what the scriptures talk a lot about. They actually talk a lot about true religion. Not doing away with religion, but doing religion well is built on deep seeing rather than deception. Deep seeing allows us to love well. Deep seeing allows us... To name things at their depth rather than at their surface. Deep seeing allows us to see the world in either direction, either better or worse than we thought it was, but at least then things can be confessed or acknowledged so that the pain can be healed, so that we can then become contemplative activists who are helping the world. So, this story in John chapter nine is fascinating, it's utterly brilliant. Because for some reason, the grammar to the mystery of life is that the people that say they see everything are the ones that are sometimes the most blind. Meanwhile, the ones that are the most blind, or at least acknowledge with humility that they don't see things, are sometimes the ones that are most able to see things for what they are. And so how wonderful that the Christ comes to those with humility who acknowledge maybe I don't see things as they are, but I pray that the Christ can open my eyes a little bit more and I can see the world in front of me. Yeah. So that's it for today. Today was the anniversary of the passing of Thomas Merton. Go online on Amazon and... Look up two books, The New Seeds of Contemplation. It's a short book. It's a great one. But then also The Seven Story Mountain. And uh, I guarantee that you'll be pleasantly surprised if you read either one of them. All right? Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Grace and peace to you. Yeah.